Hey, sleepy reader. Hello, hello. I am Marissa. And I'm Liza. And this is the Little Sleep Much Reading Podcast. Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up and he went completely out of his mind. Just so everyone is aware, I am uh, with my grandfather in Connecticut, so I'm not recording in my usual place. Any strange noises that you hear, you're going to have to forgive it because (laughs) I can't do anything about it. You can't control it. It's your life. I bet you the clock's going to go off in a minute. Does Does your grandfather have a grandfather clock? He does. Every grandpa has a grandfather clock. It's rite of passage. It kind of is the way. So I want to give a quick shout out to uh, the girl at my bookstore. I'm so sorry. I don't know your name, but if you work at Talking Leaves Bookstore, hi, and you made my day the other day. And I hope you keep listening and I hope you enjoy. And me and Liza are always here to take your book recommendations yes thanks for listening thank you for listening bestie uh this week we are doing what we call dead week dead week our final halloween episode but you know spooky books live in our hearts year round honestly yeah i'm sorry i keep looking in my corner it's because, as, uh, hey, listeners, as you know, I was, I've been having bee problems for about two weeks. Did you see a bee? I don't see. I see one that might be dead. They're still getting in, but they come in dead. Like, they have touched the poison on the outside of the house now. And so if they somehow manage to get in, they're already, like, dead or on the brink of death. Mm-hmm. And I see somebody who I'm pretty sure is dead. But... <laughs> Yesterday I saw some some bee. some bee. Yesterday I saw some bee who looked dead, and then he was he was trying to resurrect. He was pulling a mid- pulling a midnight mass, and he was trying to get right back up. I said no, so I put my office chair on top of him, and and I left. <laughs> Speaking of dead week, speaking uh... of dead week, that's a good segue. Um, dead week. So books about the dead, a very specific kind of horror genre that is yet apparently so broad to a point where we didn't even know the difference between the different kinds of books about the dead, question mark. When thinking about dead week, I immediately went and looked up paranormal fiction. I was thinking of ghosts mainly. And then I read it and I was like, wait a minute. Is this what I want or do I want supernatural? And then I looked up supernatural. Believe it or not, although they are used interchangeably, they are two different things. It blew my mind. And I get into these moods where I will read something like this and then go down a rabbit hole. I didn't have time to do that this week. But um, what I read was confusing enough. Yep. Yep. So let's start with definitions. Paranormal is phenomena that are beyond the scope of normal scientific understanding. And supernatural 
is a force beyond scientific understanding or the laws of nature. They sound extremely similar. Uh, <laughs> when? <laughs> I read those and I was like, wait a minute, this don't be making no sense. But then the more you dive into it, it kind of makes sense, but I'm still a little confused. So it goes on to say that in actual fiction, anything that is ghost, psychic, or folkloric is often defined as paranormal, and that includes aliens, because paranormal refers to something that is not understood by current scientific knowledge, but it can one day be understood (laughs) scientifically, (laughs) whereas... Whereas supernatural, it's pretty much angels, demons, and God, and sometimes mythology, Greek mythology, Roman mythology. Um, it also, which I didn't understand this, it says ghost stories are often defined as supernatural as well. So I think it, I think it depends. So let's hold there for a minute. <laughs> um, and it also says. Supernatural refers to a phenomenon that is beyond our capability to understand now and forever because it just doesn't operate under our rules. Bestie. So. I. So. <laughs> well, okay. Here's. <laughs> I love that somebody sat there and was like, werewolves. Yeah, I can explain that. But I draw the line at demons. They were like, I can explain werewolves to you. We got it. And then they were like, but if somebody asked me about a biblical angel, I got to say, stop. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> we got to put a plug on that. <laughs> it's just funny that somebody was like, here's how we separate these things. Can I say something controversial? Yeah. I wonder if the, if the want slash need to separate angels, demons, and gods was so as not to offend anyone. Because you don't want to say, like, you know, we said science, but that doesn't mean science can prove it. That means science can disprove it, too. So, like, paranormal, they were like, they were like werewolves. There's no way somebody could ever turn into a werewolf. And the same time, paranormal, ghosts. We have some kind of evidence of ghosts. Science can't explain it right now, but maybe one day it will be. And then they were like, let's not put demons, for example, in that category, because to some people demons feel connected to like their religion and so they don't want to say we can prove it or we can't prove it they want to leave it alone whereas monsters they feel like oh let's just disprove it or ghosts oh and aliens oh yeah we might be able to prove it whereas gods are kind of untouchable because it, it, it would it would offend people if you were like right. if, if you said you know and it is like you know everybody different strokes for different folks do what you want so i can't speak for like the only holy books but i know that there is demonic possession in the bible right and i feel like people are like well we can't question god so let's say this is supernatural yeah if god says it we're just gonna keep it there and i don't know how um i mean these words have been around for a while we don't know who made them to define things like we don't know when they were starting to be used i mean just off the top of my head there's a ghost in hamlet i don't think anyone would classify hamlet as a paranormal story right but that is a part of it and so i'm sure they had to be thinking of something when they when that was created were they like oh this has a ghost story in it or were they like this is a little bit paranormal i don't know 
because my first you said Shakespeare I was like oh shit like that's so true my first reaction was Christmas Carol okay now see the Christmas Carol I would classify as paranormal either paranormal yeah or super like I would classify it as one of those but like Shakespeare no it's interesting because we would never call that a ghost story we would never call Macbeth supernatural or because there's witches in Macbeth Mm-hmm. But witches are a whole different thing. And I appreciated that, that they didn't include witches in the paranormal, at least in my def and the definitions I read, which I did kind of appreciate because like, it feels weird because that is a religion. So it always feels weird when people are like, oh yeah, like witches aren't real. And you're like, okay, there's people that identify that way. On the topic of ghost stories, it looks like one of the earliest writers of ghost stories in English was Sir Walter Scott. Around the late 1800s, this is the same time as the Gothic style, which is also we had got, you know, Mary Shelley, Edgar Allan Poe, Charles Dickens. I could be completely wrong. Have you seen the Mary Shelley movie? I have not seen it. I feel like Walter Scott is in there with her and he also writes his story when they all wrote the stories together. You know what? Completely wrong. You might be right because don't you remember too in our ghost story class learning about the different writers that Mary Shelley was kind of like surrounded by and inspired by? Sir Walter Scott definitely could have been one of them. I do find it interesting that it says the first ghost story written in English because English writers were very late to the party on multiple genres, like we talked about in Hispanic Heritage Month, that Western literature copied Latin American literature with magical realism. And Marissa Mm -hmm. and I were talking about this before we started the podcast about like, we'll talk about this again at the end, but Native American Heritage Month coming up. And I wonder if the reason there's that distinction is because other cultures were probably writing about ghosts, were telling ghost stories a lot earlier than 1828, but it's not considered like the first ghost story because it either wasn't written down in English or it wasn't written down, period. It was told orally. Because 1828 feels quite late, honestly, for a ghost story. And the other thing that kind of just pops into my head on that is if we're having a little history lesson, is that there was this period that was like moving away from, um, I guess this was kind of like the age of enlightenment when they were like, you live on this earth right now. Why are we writing so much about, you know, what happens to you when you go to heaven? Why are we thinking so much? There was this point where literature diverged from religion, at least Western literature. And that was, I think, also around the 1800s. So maybe like this focus on um, earthly life and living with the moment, let people start writing about like ghosts and monsters and things that were paranormal and not things that were supernatural. I think I could be totally wrong about this. So the Iliad, that's yes. that's like the huge war one. Weren't yes. there ghosts in there too? There may have been. I know that there were the gods, but didn't like, didn't Patroclus die? Yes. And Achilles was really sad about it. But then doesn't he like come back as a ghost or something? Queer fiction, first queer fiction. You know what? It's been so long since I, the last time I read that was freshman year of college. Yeah, I don't fully remember either, but... You might know. But, but I either think way... I think you might be right. I thought, yeah, I remember there's some weird, like, war ghost thing. Yeah. And I, I think the reason why it's coming to my head is because we were talking about Shakespeare, and it, I'm pretty sure something along the lines also comes up in Julius Caesar. But it's it's also something to say that while these are, like, quote, ghost stories, like, they have ghost stories in them, it's not 
the main theme. And so, like, of course you would, again, to go back to Hamlet, of course you would never call Hamlet a ghost story because just because it has a ghost in it doesn't make it paranormal. I think that ghosts have been coming in through literature for so long. It's just a matter of how much ghost is in it that would make it an actual ghost story. But yeah, I think you're so right, Marissa, about like, it said the first ghost story was 1828, but people were putting ghosts in their stories so often before that. Which is also interesting. I wonder when there came a shift when they were actually focusing on ghosts. Mm-hmm. Like, was it sacrilegious to believe in ghosts? So that's what I'm thinking. It, that's what I'm thinking. It was like, you know, that same time period where, I mean, it, and this was around Shakespeare too. So this was obviously much earlier than the 1800s, but people would get pissed because Shakespeare wasn't writing about religion at all. And I wonder if Hamlet is one of the titles that, you know, like Puritans hated him. Also, Hamlet's gay, so. Hamlet, also every- suicide. Yeah, there's a, oh, okay. Also, Shakespeare was gay. Well, he was bisexual. So, yeah, those definitions were a little bit confusing. And we definitely got some stuff. At least I have some things to dispute when it comes to my book. I feel like if it has to do with religion, it's pretty much supernatural. Exactly. Everything else is paranormal, which is kind of stupid. Right, right. Well, should we get into our books? Yes, let's do it. I read this, I don't know what to call it. Um, I, I read this interesting book. It is called Hostage to the Devil, The Possession and Exorcism of Five Contemporary Americans. And it's by Malachi Martin. We gotta, we gotta give this book a little bit of slack because it was published in 1976. Oh, shit. Um, and so it's... I mean, it's not an old book, but um, some of the ideas are a little bit outdated as to what we would think. I will say, so Martin claims the book to be all true. All of these cases that are in the book, he got from other priests, because he's a priest, other priests and um, the actual possessed people. He talked to their family, he talked to their friends. And all he did was change the name and make it so that you wouldn't know who it is. So I was just curious. So I tried to find whether this book would be considered fiction or nonfiction. And I could not find anything about it. It just kept saying it was religious literature, which is interesting. For readability and interest, I gave this a one. This is our First, I believe, uh, did not finish. So that's a clear DNF book for the first time. But the reason why I gave it a one instead of a zero, and there's actually a reason, is because I actually got to at least page 150, almost 200, somewhere between there, before I just quit on the book. And I think it was mostly because of the form, but we'll get there starting the book I was very interested in it and I was actually scared like the first story I actually was like do I want to read this alone in my room um which is probably due to Catholic trauma who knows for language and style I gave it a five because Martin was R.I.P. Martin Martin was 
eloquent and his writing feels very, very intelligent. He does have a mix of info and small descriptions and the descriptions work really, really well. The info is another story that I'll get into. Um, when it comes to the exorcisms, I was all into it. I loved it. But between the actual stories of the exorcism, there is a lot of over-explaining and repetition and almost lecturing that just makes my brain space out. I wasn't into it. It's again, like I said, it's pretty outdated. Not only was this book published in 1976, but it was also, there was an introduction in the book that was written in the 90s by Martin. And he was talking about Satanism in the 90s. Very interesting. Talking about Satan, Satanist lesbian cults. Interesting. I don't think he really knows what Satanism and Satanic cults actually are, but whatever. <laughs> uh, I will say there's something that I appreciate about his writing where it's almost strict and commanding of the reader. I don't know if this exactly makes sense, but there is something for all of my weird issues that I have with being religious. When I'm in church or when I have been in a church, a priest is always very commanding. You always want to like listen to what they say. It's almost like going to a play. You know, the, um, the stage presence is really important. And not that I'm comparing mass to a, a play. That's not a good thing. But I'm just saying actors on a stage command presence or they kind of like fall behind and then they're like not so great. Priests also just command like attention and they say things and you kind of want to hear what they're saying. Everything's very unique in the way that they say it. I don't know, but it was very, like I said, commanding. For form, there actually is somewhat of a form in this book. And I gave it two to three because I think this is what made me quit the book. So the book is split into five different main sections, each holding chapters. The cases, which that section's the actual stories of the possessed people, don't start until page 29, and they go until page 408. So by that point, not counting the introduction, which was in Roman numeral pages, I've already read 30 pages of blah, and then I still have 100 pages of blah after the cases of, of what? If, if the meat of the book, the, the subheading of this book doesn't start until page 29, like what the heck am I reading? The beginning dips your toe into the story of a priest named Michael Strong, and he was an exorcist. And it kind of talks about how performing exorcisms or failing to do so deeply affected his entire life. Almost as soon as I started reading his story, I was interested because, and by his story, I mean Michael Strong's. He starts off talking about a possessed person named Thomas Wu in, I, I think it was like 1930, and he ate like nine different people. That's just so spooky. Can you imagine being possessed and eating people? Like that's, I don't know why, but that's, just, I, I mean, I know why, but that's just so horrifying. And I tried to like, look this up. Of course, the names he claims were changed, but I was trying to look up, you know, 
possessed person eats nine people and um, 1920s cannibal. So I tried looking it up and I could not find anything about it. But I was like, this chills me to the bone and I want more of this. But as soon as I started getting into it, he switched into something else. The next section after the one about Michael Strong is it's titled A Brief Handbook of Exorcism. And I read that entire part and I'm still sitting here trying to figure out what I learned from it. Like I literally have no clue. I guess priests consider there to be almost steps or phases of an exorcism process that indicates how far along the demon or the possessed person is. I don't know why it exactly had to be as long as it was, but it was, which I guess it was useful to the book because it uses certain words of the phases. So it was important to the book because the titles of the phases are used throughout the book during the different exorcisms in the book. It also talked a little bit about like how they set up the room and stuff like that. That stuff was interesting. I don't really mind it, but also, I don't know, just get to the meat. I feel like I'm eating all bread here and maybe some condiments, but no meat. So then I got into the first case and it was interesting how he set this up is it like starts you off immediately in the middle of the exorcism. And then the demon says something, the demon through the possessed person says something to the priest and then immediately goes into a flashback of the priest's life, kind of explaining not only what that meant, but how he went into the priesthood. It, I don't know. It, it explains a lot of backstory on what the demon said to him going into the priesthood. And I, I guess how it, how the exorcism is going to continue to affect him, how it led up to the exorcism, how other exorcisms before that had affected him, things like that. Some of it, I'm like, mm, can we just like skip this? This is annoying. Um, then it jumps back to the exorcism. And then it jumps to the possessed person, kind of explaining the process of them getting possessed and what it was like and what other people say about it and all that really fun stuff. The part where it was talking about the possessed person in the beginning was interesting, but I wasn't, I didn't fully understand, I guess, but I was rather interested in it. But then it goes from the possessed person, kind of how they got possessed, leading up to the exorcism. And then it goes back to the exorcism and we finish the exorcism. And there's a little bit of afterthought for that. Um, and the second story, I stopped close to the end of the second story, but was very similar. For shelf worthy, a read again, I gave it a one to two. This book wasn't exactly a good read. Parts of it were interesting, parts of it are creepy, but it just didn't follow through the whole book. There's nothing, it didn't, it didn't completely follow through. As I said, this book got kind of preachy and it over-explained and it didn't exactly feel like religious propaganda, but it was definitely close to it. The things that could lead you to being possessed were things that you were doing and therefore you were consenting to the demon possessing you. I don't know. I say pass. <laughs> I say pass. If you're going to read it, don't buy it. For plot, I gave this book a five. The book wasn't predictable. 
Um, I know under our five section, it's like, oh, if this is predictable or whatnot. The book wasn't predictable. It's just the plot just wasn't great. I, I Like I said, I was genuinely scared when I first got into the cases. Uh, the whole thing of possession was like super spooky and I was interested in it. So again, Catholic trauma was creeping up to me and I had a very scary moment where like demons are something that just gets me a because of Catholic trauma, but also like you can't see them. I don't know what a demon's around me. I don't know what the heck they're doing. As I went on with the book, I did get less scared, not because I found any resolve in the questions that I was asking myself or anything like that, but just because Malachi Martin takes you out of the really scary parts. You know, he takes you out of the exorcism, the sitting in the room with angry demon, the possession, all of that by spacing it out too much um, with the part about the lives of the exorcists and of the possessed before they were possessed, which I totally understand that it is an important part of the book for him. He kind of was raising awareness for priests and the hard jobs that they sometimes have and how possession takes it out of you and feeling inadequate. I don't know. It just made it less scary. I never felt like I got a moment to be scared. And I think that maybe he did it on purpose for his particular audience. Maybe he didn't want them to be too scared. But I also, I think like the demons are quite nasty. Um, I'm pretty sure there's definitely some F, there's most definitely some F-bombs in this book. I'm pretty sure there was a C word in this book. It's, it's not exactly a PG. So, I mean, his audience, if he's, dimming the scary for them I don't know if I totally buy that but just a thought so moving on characterization I gave it a one to two again he claimed that this is nonfiction, so <clears throat> although I couldn't find it labeled as either nonfiction or fiction I feel like how can I really like write these characters it's it's hard but then I thought it's, it's more of the way that he's presenting these characters. And I can't say that I was connected to any of them. I can't say that they were likable. So I don't, I, I just think they weren't even people who I was really sorry for. The religious aspects to them is almost strange. The reasons why they got possessed in the second story, the guy reads about theology or something and so that's consenting to the devil i guess like to say that people have to consent to be possessed that's not for me how about how about no um so i guess okay the realest parts were these nasty exorcisms where there were profanity and there was a lot of emotion in those parts but other than that, I just was not a fan of anyone in this book. I didn't care for them. Uh, I barely remember their names. So I don't, that's why it got a one or two. I don't really have anything else to say about it. I will say going back to the paranormal versus supernatural thing here. It's interesting because I guess since my book deals with demons and I guess religion, so God and such it would be considered supernatural. But in the introduction, which I mentioned was written in the 1990s, Malachi Martin talks about how there were a lot of things that used to be considered possession that are no longer. And that's just with time passing and people becoming more intelligent. So 
for example, Tourette's was something that they were like, this person must be possessed, which is like, okay, here's where my brain starts to overthink things and uh, makes a big knot out of straight string, if that makes sense. So if, if they could look back at cases, quote, cases of possession and say, oh, okay, well, this girl actually had Tourette's and this one was suffering from depression and this one had this and that and the other thing and blah, 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 blah. Well, then isn't that us being able to scientifically explain it? So then why wouldn't it be considered paranormal? So whether this book is supernatural or paranormal, I don't know, because I think maybe one day there will be ways to explain it. But maybe I'm just saying that because, like, I don't want demons to be real. I don't like that at all. I think you saying that, too, is like, um, it's like the witch trials hysteria, right? Where all of the... this this phenomenon is based so much on guilt that I do think too if you know it's because your book is quote-unquote non-fiction so it's telling true stories or what have you I think a, a scientific explanation for some of these things is hysteria and people mm-hmm. having so much religious-based guilt that they thought I did something wrong and now I've been possessed and that's interesting too, because that kind of ties into my book. Like, I there is aspects of guilt related to the girl who gets possessed in my book, or at least that, like, for example, like I don't want to spoil too much because I do think people might want to read this book. Like, like you said, like yours was like a DNF, like because mine is very much more lighthearted than Marissa's. But her parents are like really strict, and she's not allowed to do this, that, and the other. And then when she does something that she uh even society would say you're not supposed to do at her age or especially for religious people then things start to go seemingly start to go in the direction of that's why she was possessed or you know you start connecting the dots I think it all goes back to that kind of guilt factor I mean of course there's parts of possession that we can't really explain though i mean no um, for sure like there's something there's something is something paranormal perhaps or supernatural right but i was like you know this is one of those things where you were like yeah like i don't know i think it's one of those things that like could be at times very easy to explain and and again he 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 does say that this is all real stuff, but no one is jumping, jumping up and down to label this as nonfiction. Right. Um, there are when he in the beginning, when he goes through the handbook for exorcism and he talks about the different phases during one of the phases, he's like, OK, this is the phase when uh, the person can twist their body around unnaturally and. They make certain noises. We hear out of body type noises. There's levitating. Items will throw be thrown across the room and doors will swing open and close on their own very violently. Of course, he talk, he says that there's levitation. Uh, sometimes the priest will even drop dead during the exorcism. Right. So I'm like, do I think that 
that is some kind of mental illness. I don't know. We don't but know. I do think right. Freaky is going on. Okay. Um, right. Exactly. Like maybe supernatural, but like, huh? yeah. who knows? Who knows? That sounded scary. That like, and that's the kind of reason that like I'm freaked out um, by put demons and I don't know. They just scare me more than um, other kinds of horror. I think. I don't know why. I can't really explain it, but. Damn, I can see why you didn't finish it both from a like actual like this book is not good really standpoint and a, this is like a little too scary standpoint. It's not even like it wasn't it's not even like it was too scary. He's just like had to like I don't care that <laughs> sounds so bad but like I don't care that this priest started off at this point and then went to this point and then did this and then did this and then, right. like I don't care about all that. Like, tell right. me about the three other exorcisms he did and how they affected him. And then tell me about the exorcism he's doing now. That's, and then go into the possessed person and say, this is why I think they're possessed. That's it. R.I.P. Malachi Martin. R.I.P. Legend. If anyone likes uh, religious literature, hit up, hit up our guy. Yeah. Should I hop into this, which is quite different? To be honest, I didn't love this book as much as I wanted to. Like, I liked it. I thought it was fun. I thought it was good. But I wasn't, like, floored or anything, which I think... By the way, I read My Best Friend's Exorcism by Grady Hendrix. And I think Grady Hendrix is so hyped up that I was like, this is going to be amazing. And it was... Like I said, it, it was good, but I wasn't, like, knock my socks off. But I still liked it. And I do want to read the Southern Book Club's Guide to Vampire Hunting and the final girl support group. And I do want to read also the horror store one, which is his book that takes place in like a Ikea type thing. I think his work is, is really fun because it's original and yet it plays on classic horror tropes in a pretty interesting way. That's, that's just enjoyable. Just to give a little bit of background, like the reason we group these two together is obviously by the title. This is also an exorcism book. Um, possession book and it follows these two best friends in the late I think it's 1988 and you know how they became friends sort of how deep their friendship is and then one of them gets possessed and it all spins out into this story of them trying to figure out how to get this demon or whatever it may be out of her another thing another thing that I wanted to add that I think is quite interesting was like so, Marissa, you were kind of talking about how sometimes the demonic possessions in your book, which is quote-unquote nonfiction, um, resemble mental illness, kind of resemble um, things of that nature. And I do want to say, here is another connection. I don't want to give any spoilers, but it, it, at first, when the person who ends up becoming possessed starts showing signs of it, it appears like... PTSD, rightfully so, um, given the circumstances. But I think that's interesting too because I said something to you about how like is possession often just mass hysteria? Da 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 da. Is it also, for example, I'm not talking about my book anymore. I'm talking about like in the real world. But is it mass hysteria? Is it symptoms of one thing being mistaken for something else? And and I think that happens quite a lot too. Like even I'm thinking about American Horror Story Asylum when there's that kid in the asylum who later turns out to I think actually be possessed and he's not in, insane you know kind of things one thing being mistaken for another 
again, not trying to give too many spoilers, but there was kind of another connection I saw between within this kind of genre of what we're putting in Dead Week. You know, I think it's interesting, too, on the topic of kind of what we're talking about in terms of demonic possession and guilt, demonic possession and consent. I think I said earlier, you know, something along the lines of when demonic possession happens in a teen book or movie, for example, it's often that the teens are doing something that they shouldn't be doing, like um drinking or or you know playing with spirit boards or i i know i said i didn't want to give any spoilers but in this case if it's doing some kind of drugs doing something that teens quote unquote aren't supposed to be doing but i also want to make sure that you know like i said i didn't want to give any spoilers but i do want to give a trigger warning for this book especially because like i said i do think i think the audience is largely going to be teens for this specific read and I do want to give a trigger warning for sexual assault with this book and this kind of plays into this whole thing again right because it's like this girl one of the main girls in the story has like very strict parents that are almost like they have this kind of like these like religious undertones that are like you know that kind of strict and they end up being um gaslighters and 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 I think this is kind of a way that Grady Hendrix is flipping this trope of oh you know like you were talking about Marissa like you have to uh consent to the demon or you did something wrong to have whatever happened to you happen to you which is obviously not true and 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 I think it it plays into this whole big thing too that I think he's doing as well where it's like who is the real demons in this in, in in situations like these often is it the demons or is it bad people in the real world who either do terrible horrible things to vulnerable people or just regular people or or those who um kind of refuse to believe others refuse to support others um and so that is kind of just something that I wanted to throw in there kind of way another way that our books kind of connect and and don't connect at the same time. And I think this plays into, too, this kind of weird trope we see in horror of if you have sex in the film or in the book, you die. And it's like, where, what, what is that? What is this, what is this virtue? I don't know. I don't know. It's something that kind of has to, like, and it, it, I want, I'm kind of going on a little ramble here, but it's just because I'm, I'm thinking about it. It's like, okay. We talked about paranormal versus supernatural and how paranormal are things that cannot that have not have yet to be explained by science and and supernatural are things that are above science aka things that have to do with religion and it's like why are the things that have to do with religion demons angels possession gods again not trying to be controversial i'm not saying like judging those who are religious but like in horror why are those things always the things that end up like you know either shaming people or kind of low-key causing bad things to happen to people like sinning causes bad things to happen to you it's like okay what's happening here you know what I mean so that is something I just wanted to um address you know without giving 
too many spoilers. Um, and I do think what Grady Hendrix does with that is really interesting, and so I'm not, I'm not going to give any more. You're going to have to read it for yourself. But like I said, with a few of the books we will talk about on the podcast, I feel like we don't actually usually do trigger warnings, but it's something, you know, to think about. And like like I said, especially like depending on who's good, like teens going to be reading the book, you know, just that kind of thing. But yeah. For readability, I gave this book a six. Like I said, read it. It's a good read. It definitely wasn't playing on my mind when I wasn't reading it. And it wasn't like a go, go, go. I have to finish this to see what happens. But it was, you know, it was good. It was good. And it, and I was nothing against him, the author in particular, because I'll kind of group, I'll just go into language. Is that like, I give this a 5.5. No mistakes. Pretty distinct style. But something about his style, you know, he wasn't doing anything crazy. But something about this style that I think is noteworthy is that it was very cinematic. So by the way, this is being turned into a movie. I think it's going to star the girl from eighth grade and she's a great actress. She's in Castle Rock, which is a horror TV show, and she does great in that. So I think it's going to be good. It just it felt cinematic. And I think that's why it was so easy to read. But I think that was also why I was like, it's good. Like it wasn't, you know. The dialogue was straightforward. The scenes were very descriptive. They were described in a very cinematic way, um, very showing you what's happening, which is always a good thing. You know, and good at building tension and kind of mystique or intrigue, I guess, mysteriousness. But, you know, like I said, nothing super interesting. And I'll dive right into form because basically the form of this book is that each t- chapter The title is a song from the 80s. So by the way, he's very good at building the 80s style, but the titles of his chapter was a song title and he mentions a lot, a lot of 80s music throughout this book. And I think that was the point, but I thought it was a little cheesy. You know, it was one of those things too. It's like, we kind of learned this um, in school. Remember they they were like, don't, why would you mention the name of a, the product or something like that? Or like, why would you say the person is wearing Converse unless it's important that they're wearing Converse? Like, just say sneakers. It actually, the writing is better when that happens. And that's why I think if a song is lending itself to the story, awesome. If it's not really meant to, like, I'm thinking of the song in um, Low by Kelly Link. And it's, isn't it kind of like repeating on the record, on the track? That And she puts a few lines from the song, I think, in the story. That was working. Mentioning a bunch of 80s songs and what's playing where, kind of cheesy. And so the titles then, I was just like, you know, I don't really love this. So I, that's why I gave it a four for form. But I do think also, I don't know who this book is for. I think adults can read it for sure. I do think it's probably better as a YA book. Someone said it was middle grade, which is simply not true. I would not give this book to anybody under the age of 13 unless they were pretty mature. But I think actually this is a good book for teens, especially with horror and the eight and then the whole 80s factor. You know, it kind of reminded me a little bit of like Stranger Things. It kind of reminded me of like Fear Street. Like it's fun, but maybe perhaps cheesy at times. Um, Because of that, I gave it a five. I think you could buy it. The cover alone is cool and you might want to have it. And I think Grady Hendrix is is one of those authors that you might collect the books because they're so interesting. So that's what I said for shelf worthiness, kind of just right in the middle. For plot, I gave this book a seven. I thought it was good and not, not, it was fresh and not totally predictable, which is saying something because this 
I just mentioned that it reminds me of Stranger Things. People love a genre. People love a period piece. And now period pieces include 70s, 80s, and 90s. And people love it. And I think it works incredibly well in horror. The 80s and 70s just feel like it works. So, you know, you would think that this wasn't totally like fresh, but it still, it didn't feel like it was copying anything else. Like it felt like it was its own thing. The possession aspect of it, like I said, like I don't usually like possession stuff, but I did think this was pretty like intriguing and you did want to, you know, find out what was going to happen and what was going to happen next. And it wasn't totally predictable. The way the book starts, I think a lot of people will be like, ooh. So that's how I kind of felt about the plot. But I do think once again, And this is what I heard about Grady Hendrix. The star... Oh, also, I I will just say, even if this was a little bit tropey, I think that's the point of Grady Hendrix's books. Like, he has the Southern Book Club's Guide to Vampire Hunting. He And I think they read... I don't know. I haven't read it, but I think they, like, read, like, gothic books, perhaps. Southern goth... It's playing on Southern gothic. Of course, there's vampires. Final Girl Support Group. Like, it's a support group for the final girls of horror films. It's like he's playing on tropes on purpose because it's fun. That's all it, it that's all it needs to be. It doesn't need to be doing anything else other than that. And so I think he's hit he's doing exactly what he meant to do. In terms of characterization, this is where I rated it the highest. Um, I gave it an eight for this. We had just had this whole conversation about how like, oh my God, ew, <laughs> I hate when men write horror. And I had had a, which we don't, which is not true because we love like Joe Hill and what, uh, you know, whatever. But I was also having a conversation with somebody else where we were talking about like, when men write about teenage girls, I don't love it. It feels like it's frightening. I don't know why they're doing it. And I think Grady Hendrix, there was some things where I was like, I don't know why you specifically felt the need to write about that, but otherwise, and this is something I had seen about him, was that he writes teenage girls pretty well, and he writes female friendships pretty well, which you like, like this book passes the Bechtel test. So it's like, you know, I, you got to give him a little credit for that. And so I can see why people like said that so many times. I'd seen that so many times, people being like, I love this book because of this female friendship. I didn't think it was like the craziest, like craziestly like well-written friendship I've ever seen, but also like, I can't really think of anything else off the top of my head. Like, I don't know. I thought their relationship was really sweet and they are from the eighties. So it it's not totally reminiscent of like um what we would know, but it felt very authentic, especially thinking about other eighties films. And like, I saw people kind of comparing it to Sweet Valley High, which I thought was kind of cute, which was like that uh, teen series from, I think the eighties. And yeah, it just felt really authentic. And it felt like one of those things where, you know, this book was about possession. It was horror. It was thriller. It was this weird period piece, but it really was about these two girls friendship. And they both felt very real. Like he actually all the characters, he gave very, very distinct characteristics. I personally didn't think there was any like there was characters that you cared about less just because like you you know, whatever, but there, there wasn't any throwaway characters, which I think also says a lot because in YA, sometimes like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the friends, the friend groups, the two main characters will be so, or the one main character will be, you know, so whatever important. And then they'll just completely fuck with, I mean, I think we may have even brought about this once before that in paper towns, the one friend who is his black friend his only defining character, one of his only defining characteristics is that his family collects black Santas, which is like funny, like that's a quirk, but John Green, why did you, why was that? 
I can't remember a single other thing about that character. And then we have Nat fucking Wolf, who's like, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, Grady Hendrix didn't, he didn't just give somebody a characteristic to give it to them. So you were like, oh, I remember this person because they did that. They all felt like real girls, honestly. And so I was like, shout out to you for that one. But yeah, so this was supernatural because it was a demon possession, but very different than Marissa's completely different audience, completely different world. But such is the genre, especially of possessions. Like the only other two things that really come into my mind too are like the exorcist and the conjuring. And this was even way different than those. And yours was even way different than those. And it's like, what a broad genre. And these two people, even though like yours was like a DNF and mine was like, you know, I liked it, but it wasn't like my favorite thing I've ever read. They each did their own thing with it. I am very interested in, I guess, like just looking into more contemporary supernatural stories. Because again, I can't really think of many, but I think that they could be done fairly well. But I think that's all we have for today. That's all we have for today. Look at us go. Look at us go. I'm just still thinking about yours. I'm kind of like freaked out by the one, like a few of those stories, even like you just telling them. The smiler. I hate that. I don't like that. I also don't like cannibalism. It really freaks me out. And so that's why I didn't like, like your book last week sounded so intriguing, but I was like, I just couldn't read it. Like it would just scare the shit out of me. I'm going to make it my mission to, to find out who that guy actually was if he was a real person. That's all we have. Liza has to go get some tea for us. <laughs> I have to go get some tea. Liza um, has to go get some tea. I'm going to get some Chinese food. What is going on next week? Um, next week is the first week of November, um, which is Native American Heritage Month. So Marissa and I are each going to be reading a book um, by a Native American author. Marissa, what are you reading? I am reading The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. And I am reading Savage Conversations by Leanne Howe. And I'm excited. I'm also very excited. Um, Also, guys, it would be really fun if everyone got books by Indigenous authors and read them before next week. And then when we talk about ours, you guys could comment on our social medias and talk about yours. That would be so fun. And if you don't know what to get, me and Liza will find some great recommendations to give you on our socials. And again, if you don't follow us, follow us on LSMR podcast pretty much everywhere. And that's all. Happy that Halloween. That is it. Happy Halloween. Happy girl. Halloween. This, be safe. Be spooky this Sunday. Go off. Get it. Get it. Don't get possessed. No. Get it. Hey, besties, I got to tell you something. Do not get possessed. Don't consent to the demon. Do not consent to the demon. Oh, my God. It's such a fucked up. It reminds me of, like, that horror trope, too, where it's, like, if you have sex in the horror movie, you die. You die. I'm like, come on now. Wrap it up. Like, let's not do that again. But... Isn't it interesting how demons understand consent? Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. The demons understand consent? Oh. 
so in other words don't consent to a demon but be like a demon and understand consent that's not need that on a t-shirt need that on a t-shirt but i guess we will see you next week maybe me and liza will be recording together in person who knows who knows but thanks for listening all right besties peace out peace out have a good day (laughs) did you hear that noise no what was it i think it came from my computer and i hope that the podcast didn't just pick it up because it was like a sound like a demon coming through.